Hello everyone, it's December 25th, 2018, so Santa came just in time with episode 190, Under the Tree. He gave me a bit of a cold, but I soldier on. This week we got more exciting tweets from Elon and photos of Starship hardware. To one day see it fly, that's all I want for Christmas, and lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 190 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So... Ben just explained to me how what are they called cicades work yeah. and you don't mm. you don't have to explain that all over again but I guess I've been a little bit paranoid about my web browser <laughs> thinking that it was watching me but it <laughs> turns out it's not I just I'm just an idiot and I don't know how No it's it's see here the great thing is that it's not that you're an idiot it's that your brain fools you like people mm-hmm. spend so much time uh, obsessing over like eyewitness reports and it's like well you know People can remember things that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that they fooled themselves. It's that your brain is constantly fooling you. And it's wonderful. At first, at first, I was really paranoid about, well, if I can't trust my own vision and my own senses, like, what's the point? But it's actually really beautiful because we live such a seamless existence. Like, moment to moment feels so consistent and normal uh, and it's your brain spending a lot of, you know, brain power, a lot of clock cycles trying to make your experience feel uh, good and normal. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's actually something to be celebrated, not 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 something to be paranoid over or, you know, yeah. obsessed over. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you don't know any better, then you yeah. might be paranoid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. right. <laughs> Thinking that the camera on your computer is watching you because it seems to respond to when you look at it. But as it turns out, that's just my brain doing magic yeah. so this is our christmas episode i guess since this should be going oh, out i wish christmas, we had so. jingle bells jing, 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 jing. <laughs> and all the all the toys that do that they're all upstairs so i'm no hope i'm no help here <laughs> so for this uh, special christmas episode which i guess is our first because we've always taken a week yeah. off um yeah it's a christmas miracle so i guess well, we should just move on to this week in space flight history and i don't know if this is a christmas clue but i guess we're about to find out so mm-hmm. do we have any winners this week yeah uh so we have three winners uh jay adink uh, HZ Science and Jason Friesen. Uh, the clue from last week was TikTok, TikTok. And this week in Spaceflight History is the 30th of December, 1995. It was the launch of the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer. And the name already begins to clue you into why the clue was the clue. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is also known as Explorer 69. I don't know. For some reason, I really love the different uh, funding. What are they called? Like Explorer and... Oh, it's like, like discovery the, class missions and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, they call it like a, a mission class, but it's more like just a funding source, right? So I, I like knowing which vehicles go into which funding source. I think it's kind of cool. All right. So anyway, um, uh, Rossi X-Ray Time Explorer is one of the few missions that I've talked about on this show that has come to a, a conclusion. It, it shut down on the 3rd of January, 2012, which of course is, you know, longer than it was supposed to go. They were, they had a five year primary mission. So, uh, so Rossi um, contributed massively to science. Mm-hmm. Oh, and before you go on, I, I just wanted to highlight that, you know, it deorbited earlier this year. Oh, did it really? I didn't yeah, there know was, that. There was a pretty wide window on when it was going to finally fall out of the atmosphere. And that just happened uh, earlier yeah, in 2018. Oh, cool. So um, the Rossi data contributed to over 1,400 papers. Um, that count was taken in 2007. So by now it's much, much higher than that. And some of the cool things, uh, uh, Wikipedia had a nice little uh, list of, of neat things that it contributed to. Um, it located a candidate intermediate mass black hole, um, which is kind of important because right now we only 
know of small black holes that are like stellar masses and we know of you know super giant black holes that are like at the center of galaxies um, but we don't have anything really in between them that we've been able to observe there have been lots of people pointing to them but then as soon as you actually take a look they aren't you know aren't what you think they are um and and of course you know the way that we see black holes is not by directly observing the black hole but by observing matter around the black hole so you know the way that stars mm -hmm. orbit um so anyway uh rossi potentially found an intermediate mass black hole it also proved that the uh background x-ray radiation which is like the echo of the Big Bang that's as far as we can see. Um, it, it proved that that radiation comes from, quote, innumerable previously undetected white dwarfs uh, and from other stars, Corona or, or mm -hmm. Corona. And so that's that's pretty cool because, you know, we, we talk about the, you know, the Big Bang radiation that we can see. And, and it's cool to know exactly what what that's coming from very, very yeah, it's, early. It's, it's fun. There's That's the famous one, the cosmic microwave background. But I mean, there's a background in every single part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Right. Yeah. And trying to figure out where they're all coming from is kind of, yeah, yeah, a big yeah. question. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. It was also, the data was also used to infer the size of the smallest known black hole, which is pretty cool. I love black hole science because um, they're totally weird and mysterious and they, you know, probably break the laws of physics as we know them um you know in inside i mean it's just it's a totally <laughs> different realm of reality that we haven't been able to study but uh, on reddit i love answering questions especially on the uh the uh space question subreddit there are a lot of really low hanging fruit where people are asking really basic questions that are still really good questions and i can go in and go oh actually i know about this <laughs> and, and my favorite ones are about black holes because you know, people think of them as uh, vacuum cleaners that somehow suck in all the matter around them when it's like, no, they're just regular sources of gravity. They're just very, very strong sources of gravity mm -hmm. um, that you can go, you know, inside. You can go inside a planet, but you're, you know, still able to escape from it. And, and while you're talking about just how prolific this was, I just kind of wanted to emphasize that it's not true of all space missions that we have mm. up there, but sometimes we open an entirely new window mm. on the universe. And that's what this Rossi was. It, it was the first time we were able to do kind of high cadence, good precision x-ray science. Before this, we were basically putting proportional counters on the the tops of rockets and then sounding rockets and then just launching them once, you know? <laughs> and mm. so this was a really big deal. And I don't think they've, it's had a successor since. And so it's still, like you were saying, the number of papers that have come out, it's still increasing to this day. Mm -hmm. This is why we brought Dennis on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I just love Rossi. I mean, I've been, yeah, I've seen talks about this and everything. And so, yeah, so these, yeah, what are these instruments that we got on here? Yeah, yeah, so three instruments. There's ASM, the All-Sky Monitor, and this is pretty cool. It's uh, three cameras basically out on a stick that rotate uh, around, and so they can observe 80% of the sky every orbit or every 90 minutes, which is, like, insane. That repeatability is is really crazy. Then there's the proportional counter array. And, Dennis, you want to talk about this? Because, well, mm. so so let, before that, let me say there's a proportional counter array and the high-energy X-ray timing experiment, or HEXD. And between these two, uh, Rossi can observe from 2 keV up to 250 keV. So, all I really know is that the PCA, the proportional counter array, 
takes the low end from two to 60, and then Hexty takes 15 or 30 up to 250. So what, mm-hmm. what's the difference between these two? The difference between what we call soft uh, x-rays, the lower energy, and hard x-rays, the higher energy, is basically where they come from. So some of the soft x-rays uh, will be coming from the accretion disk around the black hole as it's kind of superheated spiraling in, right? The gas that spirals in. Mm-hmm. Uh, while uh, black holes, just like our sun, have a like a really, really, really hot corona at you know millions of Kelvin. And that's where you generate most of the hard x-rays. And so that's why we kind of make an artificial distinction between soft and x-ray, sorry, soft and hard x-rays is because of the different uh, astrophysical sources they come from. And what changes the energy of an x-ray? Is it frequency or amplitude or what? Uh, these, these wavelengths uh, are, I don't know what the frequencies are, but these are like angstrom sized okay. uh, wavelengths. So we're talking about, okay. you know, an atom roughly. Uh, that's why when you, you know, want to image atoms, you can use uh, x-ray uh, microscopy. But yeah, and uh, as far as what's actually causing those changes, if I remember correctly, it's the, the accretion disk, we're talking more kind of thermal, just black body spectra type of, uh, you know, temperatures causing that to happen. And then those photons that are at lower energies, when they go into the halo, the corona around the black hole, they get struck by really, really, really fast-moving electrons and are what's called Compton upscattered to really high energies. And so that's the idea for why we get the really high energy ones is the photons started off not that high in energy, but they just got hit by a, an electron so hard that that basically energy transferred into the energy of the photon. Wow, okay. So that's a lot of new information I didn't know. Um, <laughs> so black holes have a corona? Because I didn't know that. I mean, I've never heard that term used with mm-hmm. black holes. Like, is that just like a sphere that surrounds the black hole? If yeah, you could think of it. It's basically it. It's kind of all the, I, I think of it as just the chaos that's going on, you know, outside of the accretion mm-hmm. disk and, you know, around the jets. So there's sort of, uh, yeah, there's just kind of like a, a chaotic mess of electrons and other nuclei moving around at relativistic speeds, kind of all, all on kind of different orbits. I guess that makes sense. But I mean, there is mostly like a primary accretion disk, right? I mean, mm-hmm. but then there are things that are random crap that's kind of like spiraling around it from, you know, I guess every which direction. And so that's what creates the corona. Yeah, yeah. I can, you know, I'm thinking off the top of my head, you could almost think of it as kind of like a spray of all the stuff from the disk and the jet that's kind of just getting scattered around in the general vicinity of the black hole. Okay. Yeah. In fact, that's uh, the very first research I ever did in undergrad was about comparing the accretion disk versus the halo or corona. So that's why I actually still remember some of this stuff, (laughs) remarkably (laughs) enough. So uh, the proportional counterarray can sample every one microseconds, which is uh, very, very fast. That's that's Um, wild. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, HEXTI, the High Energy X-ray Timing Experiment, uh, goes up to eight microseconds. Um, But again, it's the higher energy X-rays. And then what's really cool is that it's got two clusters of four FOSS switch detectors. Um, Dennis, do you know off the top of your head what a FOSS switch is? I guess that what it is, so you'll have to, I'm on my honor, that I did guess that it probably was just physical kind of scintillating detectors, and yeah, I verified uh-huh. before the show that that's what they are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and 
Foswich, the word is actually portmanteau of phosphor and sandwich. Um, <laughs> I say I hadn't heard that before, and that's yeah. a, that is a beautiful word. <laughs> um, so so you know it's phosphor sandwiches that basically glow when they're struck by an X-ray, and so we're not observing the X-rays directly; we're observing the the glow. It's almost like um, like shining a black light at you know an object that fluoresces under black light. It's uh, these uh, phosphwitches. Uh, fluoresce under x-ray radiation and so you can figure out what is coming in and from what direction by looking at how they glow so there there are two clusters of four fos switch detectors and what's really cool is that each of them can rock back and forth they call it quote-unquote beam switching so or they call it quote-unquote rocking but they say that it's beam switching so i think it's a electric change um, not a physical change that allows them to rock back and forth but they um, they can observe two different directions um, and they can move only in one axis, uh, and that those two axes axes are orthogonal to each other. So they they kind of rock at like right angles to each other, almost if you had a light switch that went up and down and a light switch that went side to side. They're kind of like mm-hmm. bistable. They are in one position or the other, and so they can kind of do this thing. But what's really cool about that is that it allows you to not only observe a thing, but it also allows you to observe just to the side of a thing um, so you can get a sample of the background radiation. Uh, I mean, it, it seems uh, eminently helpful or useful. I don't know the site you know how statistically useful it is but i'm i'm assuming it's pretty darn useful to be able to do that well welcome to the i imagine part of the show <laughs> yeah no no i mean you you always got to do a background subtraction but usually it's using this the primary instrument itself you know you, you look on the object and then you look off object but yeah. to be able to do it simultaneously i guess because timing was so important to this mission is why they gave mm. you that kind of yeah. ability that's so cool. <laughs> All right. So that is the Rossi X-Ray Timing Explorer. Very, very cool. I have a clue for next week. Uh, so next week in 2004, the clue is, oh, that's where the wild things are. Hmm. I have no idea, but I have <laughs> the clue. <laughs> Me neither. No clue. All right. Well, we have a clue. I have no clue as to what that clue means. <laughs> but if you think you do, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. We have more Starship photos and tweets. So this is like a recurring sub-segment of the show. <laughs> oh, yes. We talk about pictures taken by clever people who know how to take them. And then tweets from Elon, usually conversations between Elon Musk and Tim Dodd. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true. So Chris, who goes by Robot Beat on Twitter, don't know his last name, uh, caught some pretty cool photos out in Boca Chica of what looks like the first stage of the, not the first stage, just uh, how would you describe this? Because, it, you know, to me, this looks like a grain silo, but that can't be what <laughs> it is because I don't know why they would be putting that. That's yeah, not bad. It doesn't look like something they would fly. But uh, I guess, you know, this has what looks like landing leg type structures protruding Mm -hmm. from a large silo like structure. And I don't see any engines, but obviously those have not been integrated yet. If this is even going to fly, which I imagine it must, because why else would they be building it? But it just doesn't look like a flight worthy type thing as primitive, you know, as I'm sure it's going to be. I don't know. How would you describe this? Because I mean, it it looks like a soup can that's supposed that's allegedly the bottom of the big Falcon ship. 
or whatever they're calling it now. <laughs> but it does, yeah, look like a tin can. Well, but I mean, I, I, you, you guys are you guys are kind of ignoring the beautiful legs that are sticking out of it. Um, <laughs> so I, I know that yeah, yeah, soup can is not a bad description, but to me, it looks like the bottom of the SpaceX Starship. I mean, that's kind of the mm. you know the the BFS, the Big Falcon ship. I mean, that's that's what it looks like to me. And and what's really weird is that there are two other sections. There's um, sort of a tapering section that's tapering from the full, what, like nine meter diameter down to the nose cone. And then there's the nose cone itself. Um, and both of them look very inelegant, especially the nose cone it looks very inelegant just sitting there on its own. But I think the soup can portion looks gorgeous. Um, I, I love those giant legs coming out. And it also gives such a great sense of scale. This thing is really big yeah it's tough you got you gotta when you look at the images of it to make sure to keep track of whether you're looking at a leg or a crane yeah because mm -hmm. you know uh -huh. they're kind of all floating around together yeah no that's that's a great point it's yeah that that's kind of the scale of these things it, it makes me kind of get you know little uh goosebumps <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah well i mean it just doesn't look very it doesn't look very structurally stable, although I'm sure that it is. It's just it, it looks like that they welded some paneling on some other internal structure, which is more sound, I'm guessing, because to me, it, it just looks like a big grain silo, like something you would see out in the middle of a field and you would, mm -hmm. you know, put corn in there or something, but not try to launch it off of the ground. That was kind of my question was like, I mean, is this what a lot of these, you know, the rocket structures look like underneath when they're kind of having their first pass at physically constructing them? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, you know, it's welded panels of, mm -hmm. of metal. So any, anything this big certainly is going to look like this smaller vehicles. Yeah. You're just going to have one seam running down the side. So it's not going to look as patchworky. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this, this is not like a, a crazy thing. Like this kind of is the way that big structures look, but I, I think it's really interesting to point out that what we're looking at is steel and not carbon composite. And that was the big thing was this is going to be a carbon composite rocket. We figured out how to do carbon composite tanks. And all of a sudden, that's not what's happening anymore. My big question is what went wrong? I don't think that this was by choice. I mean, I don't remember if anyone has said that out loud, but I think it's that they couldn't do it, right? I mean, is that mm. not what the conclusion is? They said, okay, we're going to use some kind of steel and then we're just going to say, or I guess the Elon will say, you know, here's a better idea. But really, it seems like they just couldn't do the first one <laughs> using yeah, the carbon. Th that's interesting yeah. because they obviously put a lot of time and money into the carbon composite tanks and they even built a couple prototypes and mm -hmm. we saw those prototypes being tested and maybe those prototypes just never got to the point that they needed to get to so yeah i mean you know maybe you're maybe you're right here i'm i'm not 100 percent sure i'm trying to think of a good way that we would know which one it was and I think until, you know, somebody from the inside comes forward, I don't think we're ever going to know. But it just seems like that they would have used the carbon because that was, you know, the new hotness. That's what everyone wanted to use because it's just so much better in so many ways, except that it's, you know, very hard to manufacture and machine on large scales, um, that they needed all this special equipment to even make this happen. And I mean, I just think that there was something in the manufacturing process that they couldn't quite do, or maybe they couldn't do it at cost. And that was probably the big issue. And so they did a whole new redesign. And now we have this. So uh, what we do know is... Um, 
that this is using 300 series alloys, which is, according to a few searches, is pretty much chromium nickel. Um, mm. But it's something, I think, different that hasn't been done before, some kind of a different mixture or whatever, how they're doing it exactly. It's not something that's used generally. But, I mean, this is a pretty common alloy, which is used in all kinds of stuff. It's used in cars, and it's used to, I think it's even used in manufacturing surgical steel, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But what they're using is something a little bit different. But, um, yeah, my knowledge of metallurgy is not that great. So I wouldn't be able to say much more than that. Yeah, and I'd love to help you, but yeah, I know nothing about metallurgy either. <laughs> but what what's lucky is we can speculate as much as we want, and boy, you know we're gonna. Um, but <laughs> Elon said that um, after the first flight of the spaceship Hopper, um, which is you know kind of like the Grasshopper or F9R Dev, after the first flight, uh, Elon has promised us a technical presentation talking about the changes. He's saying that that's going to happen in March or April. I think on this show we're going to go ahead and say uh, <laughs> later in the summer at earliest, maybe uh, mm. end of next year. But yeah, so so we're going to speculate a lot, but we're. We know we're going to hear more in the future, and hopefully earlier than expected. I'll be interested to know how this test works and exactly what it is that they're testing. Is it just mostly the avionics or whatever, like kind of like what they did with Grasshopper, or not the avionics, but what is it I'm trying to say? Getting the right kind of stabilization? I think all the above. And I think also they're going to be testing Raptor engines. Um you know, the first flight of a Raptor engine is, is going to be a big deal here. Yeah, and that's something that, that also came up was the Raptor engines. Um, I think Tim Dodd asked about the current status of those, or it might have been someone else, actually. But yeah, like Elon says that they're doing well and that they have been radically redesigned. Now, is this a new statement from him? Because oh, I can never knows. keep up. <laughs> uh, radically redesigned, still not at the coveted 300 bar. So, you know, they are really trying to get those chamber pressures up. Apparently, they're working towards it and maybe they're not too far away from that. So that would be neat. Yeah. That, so Elon uh, was talking about the about the Raptor redesign and he was saying that SpaceX has developed a super alloy called SX500. The issue here is that they're running at very, very high temperatures in oxygen, you know, oxygen-rich environments, which means that pretty much anything he he says will turn into a flare, you know, just everything, Mm -hmm. everything burns. Um, So SpaceX has developed SX500, which is going to be able to run in, you know, 12,000 PSI kind of conditions inside this rocket engine. And, and what's what's really important here is that Raptor is going up to 300 bar. Like, that's what they need out of this engine, and they haven't got there yet. But yeah, this, this is a very high-performance engine on paper. Elon confirmed that it is still a full-flow staged combustion mm-hmm. engine, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool. And I'm glad that there were no compromises there because, I mean, it would be sad to see that go away because, you yeah. know, if, at first we have this brand new carbon fiber type of a rocket and we have these cool stage combustion engines and then it's like no it's actually just made out of steel and they're just you know gas generator type Uh engines well you know that takes all the cool stuff out of it but yeah so the raptor engines are still awesome uh elon mentioned starlink um not not too much but uh he confirmed that version one of the starlink uh satellite is going to fly in falcon 9 and then version two and onward will fly on starship um, so that's that's pretty cool that they're going to have, you know, their own uh, they're, they're going to be their own customer there. Oh, yeah. So uh, these these images of Starship 
are um, a miniature version of Starship. It's it's the nine meter diameter, but it'll be shorter than the full scale Starship. Um, and then there was a follow up question talking about Super Heavy, and Elon confirmed that they're not going to do a scaled down Super Heavy um, or you know BFR, the actual the booster. Um, that's going to go straight to full size. So what they're going to do is work on a small spaceship first, do some tests, and then go to full size for everything it sounds like. Um, they are also, they have a foundry and they are making their own steel. Um, they are, cat, you know, all the cast products are all cast at Hawthorne, uh, but sheet and plates are being made by a supplier, probably because that's, that's a little harder to do. And then the really cool thing is that even though these look like balloon tanks, Elon said, that Starship won't buckle, or Starship mm-hmm. and Super Heavy won't buckle when they're depressurized. Which, when he said, un, you know, unintuitive, that really sounds unintuitive because, like, that's a great thing to have. That also means a lot of weight. So we're gonna have to see what what happens here, how they're gonna pull this off. Although I would expect that it would not buckle because it doesn't seem like the kind of feature that a vehicle that will be used many times over would have, that you have to keep the tank pressurized. If not, it'll buckle and fall over. Like you wouldn't want to have to maintain pressure throughout the whole life of the vehicle um, because this thing is going to be... Well, I mean, once you you get onto the horizontal integration stage, you can depressurize it. That's fine. It's just when it's standing up, I think, is the big issue. Yeah, but I mean, the idea is that it's supposed to always be standing up, right? Oh, they're not going to do horizontal integration for these guys? I guess you're right. That's kind of what the videos have looked like. Yeah, okay, all right. At least the pictures would seem to indicate that they're just going to like, you yeah. know, lift it on a crane and put a little yeah. new spaceship on top. Yeah, totally right. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, so so there you go. That's uh, That's Starship. We just got three extra short and sweet, short and sweets. All right, Dennis, what's our first one? <laughs> oh, yeah. So SpaceX reveals his first completed Crew Dragon spaceship. Yeah. An official tour of SpaceX's Pad 39A revealed that the company has effectively completed integration and pre-flight prep of the Crew Dragon spacecraft, as well as the new Falcon 9 Block 5 rocket that will launch it early next year. With a launch date no earlier than January 17th, Demonstration Mission 1, or DM-1, will be uncrewed and hopefully give NASA the data it needs to certify the spacecraft to launch astronauts as early as June 2019. And next up, a New Shepard is scrubbed until early 2019. Uh, The 10th flight of a New Shepard was delayed on Tuesday due to a ground infrastructure issue. Later that day, the launch day was revised to no earlier than December 21st. However, on Wednesday, Blue Origin announced it will be pushing the launch attempt back even further, tweeting, through fixing the ground infrastructure issue, we have determined additional systems needed to be addressed. We have changed our target to early 2019 for next launch attempt. So something big happened or went wrong. And finally, uh, or thirdfully? Thirdfully. Thirdfully. Uh, And then last up, uh, Dream Chaser passes Integrated Review 4. This is pretty cool. By passing this review, Dream Chaser is approved to move to full-scale production. It's not scheduled to fly to ISS until late 2020 at earliest, but there are other potential applications that might lead to an earlier flight. Sweet. Yeah, and short. (laughs) Right. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns, and we got three things to discuss.、Uh, first up, last week about that sample return taken from the Soyuz spacecraft by the cosmonauts. We were discussing why they would want to bring back some of that. Well, they didn't cut out a hole, but what was it that, that they just kind of scraped some samples? Yeah,、mm-hmm. they scraped samples off of the epoxy that squished、yeah. through from the inside. So I was wondering why that would be because the drill was made from the inside. So I figured that any evidence would be on the inside,、mm-hmm. uh, but we. Got a correction from Bananas on Mars. That is the Reddit handle. Good name, Bananas on Mars, and that was in our subreddit. So he said, "A quick correction on the sampling of the glue used to cover the Soyuz hole. As far as I know, the goal was to sample some of the glue used for the cover-up repair on the ground, not the glue they used for the repair on orbit. Presumably to pinpoint the culprit, not to evaluate the validity of their on-orbit repair method." Yeah, makes sense. A little forensics. Yeah, yeah. And that was what I was thinking. In the first place, except that you wouldn't want to take it from the outside. But I guess if someone on the ground were trying to cover it up, they would also want to cover up the hole from the outside, so that maybe it just wouldn't be visually、uh, like visible. So I, I think it's pretty likely, and of course this is speculation, but I think it's pretty likely this. Hole was drilled after Soyuz was dressed up, right? I think that this was after the micrometeorite shield was applied and after the insulation blankets were installed. I think all of that happened, and this happened fairly late、uh, in the vehicle's、mm-hmm. life because the the earlier、mm-hmm. it is, the more likely it is to be caught. So、exactly. I, I think the I think the key here is that the glue was applied from the inside, then it popped out. Right, like obviously this plug of glue, this plug of glue worked for a certain amount of time and then popped out somehow, and then they applied epoxy on top of it. So if you're going to sample that glue, if you're going to sample it from inside the vehicle, it's already covered in epoxy. If you're going to sample it from the outside, then that's when it's going to be exposed. That makes sense. Yes,、yeah, so maybe there's just like a little bit of the residual glue still、yeah. on the outside. Yeah, and that's what they're looking and for. And that、okay. feels right, doesn't it? Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. So we we appreciate that little correction. I think that's really good.、Um, and then next up, I want to talk about our mailing list.、Um, apparently, my two co-hosts have no idea what's what's going on here, but it's. <laughs> nope. Pl- plenty of people know about this already.、Uh, it's been posted on Reddit and on Twitter, and I, I could have sworn I mentioned it to you guys in、uh, in Slack.、Um, but basically, I'm going to blame I- the holidays. Well, th- this was from a month ago, so I did I did kind of a soft open, and now I'm actually announcing it. So one of the things that's really bugged me is when you listen to the show. If you listen to it on your phone, the show notes that appear on your phone there are links, but there's no photos. And this is something that we might be able to correct in the future when we、um, get a new website, which I promise is still being worked on. But Squarespace doesn't allow you to do that. In fact, Squarespace makes you retype all of your notes because it no longer sucks them up from the post that you made, which is insane to me.、Hmm. But anyway, so it's really bugged me that when you experience this this podcast, we put a lot of work into. Um, including links and photos and and videos and all these things and not every show has them but like when they're applicable they get put in、um, and I I make a real effort to make sure that every episode has like a, a cover photo that you know shows up in all the social media and and helps、uh, make the links more attractive and what's really been bugging me is that none of that work. Uh, is exposed to anybody but a small portion of people who click through to our Squarespace website and look at the actual post. And so, if you're listening to this show, you know if you're listening back to previous episodes, 
it gets harder and harder to find them on the website. Of course, you know, there's an episode number, but then you have to scroll and or search and it just, it gets out of hand real quick. So um, what I decided to do was I created a campaign on MailChimp and you can go ahead and sign up for our MailChimp list. And what'll happen is every week you will get the show notes emailed to you. And I'm kind of following in the steps of 99% Invisible who does something similar to this. So my my thought process here is either you listen to the show right away and you can go into your email and pull those links up. You know, you, you listen to the show, you go, oh, I want to look that up. You're never going to remember to open up your podcast app and find that played uh, that played episode. I know I never do. I mm-hmm. I hope that you're not going to click on the link while you're driving. There are some people who, you know, listen to podcasts while their hands are clean and not on a steering wheel. Uh, but I'm certainly not one of them. And so the idea is either you listen to the show first, and then if something clicks in your head, next time you check your email, there's this this email there that's got everything and you can read through and real quick find what interested you even if you've you know forgot about it. this will will trigger your memory and then if we mention photos uh, they will be at the bottom of the email and you can see what you heard about and hopefully that'll help concrete things alternatively you can read the email before you listen to the show uh, maybe those links aren't going to be super helpful um, cause I feel like if I got this, I wouldn't know exactly what I was interested in until I'd listened to the show and heard kind of a breakdown. Um, but if you read the email before you listen to the show, you'll get all of these photos to begin with. And so when you're listening to the show, they'll already be in your head. And, and so I think this is uh, going to add a lot of value. I know that there are certainly podcasts that I listen to that I would like to have this happen. Like I said, uh, 99% invisible does something similar, but it's more of a advertising kind of thing than a, than a show notes thing. So this is very information oriented and, and no uh, advertising. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not trying to get you to listen to the show. I'm just making these resources available to you. And so the show gets published around two o'clock on Tuesdays, whenever David's finished with it. Um, the email show notes will go out noon every Tuesday. And I've only, I think I've only been late on one of them. If I've been late on any of them at all, um, I'm still learning some things. I had to uh, figure out that, Oh, MailChimp doesn't auto uh, link to big versions of the images. So if you click on an image, I have to do some extra work to actually make it come up larger and link to link to a, an original resolution version. Um, I've learned that I need to remember to adjust the subject line of the email. But anyway, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. And at some point, what I want to do is always have these published Sunday night or maybe Monday morning and let Patreon subscribers get show notes a day or two in advance. And then everybody else can get them the day that the episode is released. So um, if you're interested, go to our website. Uh, there is a banner up at the top. Uh, that will let you sign up. You can also go to our subreddit. It's one of the pinned notes or one of the pinned posts for a while. Um, and at some point, I'll add a URL, probably uh, the urbanmechanics.com slash newsletter or something. But I haven't done that yet, so I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> promise anything. Cool. All right. And then moving on to our third thing. <laughs> I don't even want to say it, but you can go ahead and say it. <laughs> okay. So a few weeks ago, we got an email from a book publisher, and this happens fairly often. Book publishers go, hey, we, you know, we want to promote a, a book that's coming out. And so, you know, they'll email a bunch of different podcasters seeing if anybody's interested in an interview. So we got this interview request. It's for a book called Space is Cool as F*** uh, by Kate Howells and Friends, and it's published by Lost the Plot Books. 
And uh, so it's an astronomy book, so it doesn't really fit into our niche. So I said, you know what, guy, I'm sorry, we, you know, we're going to have to pass on the interview, but this book looks really, really cool. So I said, can you give me a link? Do you mind if we like retweet something? And uh, they don't have a Twitter associated with the book. Um, So I said, you know, I'll just go ahead and uh, mention it on the show. Um, There's going to be a link in the show notes to ltpbooks.com. I'm not going to read the whole URL, <laughs> but it's it's really cool. So it's called Space is Cool as F***, and the, one of the summaries is Artists and Scientists Collide on the Magical, Wonderful Infinity and Possibility of Space. Uh, they're calling it a unique gift to delight and offend. There are over 50 chapters on subjects including what actually happened during the Big Bang, black holes, time travel, the degenerate astronomer who drank all night and died from holding his bladder and also lost his nose in a duel. Everybody should know who that is. Um, <laughs> the things we take for granted until you really think about them, like matter, what the fuck is all the dish that we all are. And it's gorgeous. It's got illustrations and photos, and it really... It's even got comics in it. It really seems like a fantastic book. Uh, and so I wanted to wholeheartedly point people at it. It looks like a perfect kind of coffee table. They mm-hmm. they offered book. to send us a book, uh, but I said, you know, we're we're not doing an interview, so I can't. I don't want to take a book from you. <laughs> well, I know why I didn't want to say the name because now I have to do a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Ring, ting, jingling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's your Christmas present, David. A little extra editing you have to do now. <laughs> Their URL actually is G-rated. They uh, changed it to Space is Cool as FK. All right, so that's that. So let's move on to uh, upcoming spaceflight events. We just got a couple things that we got to launch coming up on the 27th, Dennis. And what is that? So we have the Soyuz 2.1A with an upper stage frigate, which will be taking Canopus 5 number 5 and Canopus 5 number 6 up into space. Uh, These are a series of Russian Earth observation satellites, and this will take place... uh, like David said, on December 27th at 0207 UTC from the Cosmodrome. And then next, uh, oh boy, guys, I'm so excited about this. Um, so New Horizons is going to be flying past Ultima Thula. And um, so there, there's going to be a, a lot of a lot of to do. So um, NASA TV is probably the best place to go um, on December 28th. Uh, which is Friday at 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. They're going to be uh, doing a preview of the flyby. I'm assuming it's just going to be, you know, uh, CG renders with a, with a narrator from PAO. Then on December 31st, which is Monday, um, they're going to be doing a media briefing at 2 p.m. Eastern time, then a Q&A with the New Horizons team at 3 p.m. That's the one I'm really excited about. And then at 8 p.m. Eastern time, they're going to be doing a panel discussion. And then, of course, the closest approach actually happens January 1st, uh, at 12.15 a.m. Eastern Time. That is intentional. They tweaked the trajectory so that it would happen very, very close to New Year's. And so uh, New Horizon signal, signal acquisition will happen at 10 a.m., which is much more accessible to most yeah. people. <laughs> uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And then they will do a post-flyby press conference at 11.30 a.m. And then uh, they will do a science results briefing uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, so January 2nd and January 3rd at 2 p.m. Eastern time each day. Oh, guys, this is going to be so cool. Um, if you're not familiar, sorry, I'm going to drone on for a little bit here. If you're not familiar with Ultima Thula, 
It is a binary object that looks like Churyumov Gerasimenko, like a lot. It looks like Churyumov Gerasimenko, mm-hmm. except it's like five times bigger, maybe like 10 times bigger. Yeah. So, so right now we're basically running on, um, stellar occultation, occultation. I don't think they've done any, uh, direct imaging from New Horizons yet. Is that right? It's, it's just a dot of light, if I remember correctly. They, they have an acquisition kind of image, but it's yeah, just okay. a, a dot of light at this point. Okay. Um, but, you know, we know enough to say that it has no moons, it has no rings, so we're going to get real close to it. Oh, it's going to be so great. Who knows just the details of what the surface is going to look like. Yeah. I mean, Pluto surprised us so much. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that I'm wondering, though, how did they tweak the trajectory to make it coincide with New Year's? Or how far out did they have to do that? Or how far ahead of time they did they have did to do that? They did it several months ago. So, you know, minimum delta V for something that's you know, just a little mm-hmm. Easter egg kind of thing. Yeah, because that's pretty cool that, that they were able to do that. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it was it was pretty close to begin with, right? They after they passed Pluto, they started narrowing down on what other bodies they were going to go visit, and Ultima Thula was like, "Hey, that's pretty close. Let's just little and get us closer." Anyway, nature is being kind to us. Right, right, right. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So we will now deorbit, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And a Happy New Year. Happy New Year.